so I was I was inspired some, if that's the word, by the um, starting up of schools and by the uh, approach of Labor Day. And I was inspired to enjoy, for me, um, a last quiet week <laughs> before Labor Day. But but especially, I was I was inspired to reflect on the theme of work as spiritual practice. And so I wanted to explore that this time, and we'll see if the energy is strong for continuing it. But I wanted to um, explore this sense of how our work, and I, I want to interpret work quite broadly, not just to mean our employment, but to mean what we do in the world. It could mean raising children, uh, it could mean the community work that we do, and so forth. So work in a broad sense as, as really that which occupies our time and that which we do in a fairly regular way. Uh, so I'd like, to, I'd like to reflect on how our work may be mo- more fully continuous with our practice. And it's really also a theme that's very central to that two-year program, The Path of Engagement. And it's something that I think we all uh, yearn for, to, to really have our work be full, be an expression of our deepest values, to be ways that we express our love, our wisdom, our compassion, but also be places where we actually can learn and develop in the most important qualities that we want to develop uh, in general. And yet, that's challenging, isn't it? It's challenging to have our work as spiritual practice for a variety of ways, for a variety of, of reasons, I should say. And what I'd like to do is to explore that and then have a dialogue among us, about what helps us. And I was thinking of this in terms of three main themes. One is the teachings about right livelihood and what we might call the ethical dimensions of work as spiritual practice. The second is the dimension of individual vocation, or how do we find the work which sort of, uh, I don't know, to use non-Buddhist language, expresses our souls most fully, expresses our, our longings, our yearnings to, to really be, uh, be fully ourselves and be of service in the world. So that's the second theme. First is more right livelihood and ethics. The second, um, the sense of vocation or horror calling. And the third is how do we make our actual work uh, into uh, more into practice? So this would be having to do with how do we uh, have our work be a place where we bring mindfulness and wisdom and uh, uh, attention to the ongoing process. So that's what I want to explore. And I thought I would begin with um, four quotations or four, four um, interesting perspectives on this situation. And the first is from the Mahayana tradition in Buddhism, particularly from uh, China. And that the, uh, here the quotation is, a day without work is a day without food. <laughs> this, was, this was the guideline for the monasteries. And this actually is, uh, is an interesting difference from the Buddhism of India and, and actually the traditions of South Asia, where monks and nuns generally don't work. And for the Chinese, who are probably more like Americans, pragmatic, they said, 
Not working? Forget it. A day without work is a day without food. And, and, the, and, they, would, and they, they actually put a lot of attention into how does our work be, how, does our, how is our work part of our practice? So that's the first. And the second is, is similar, and it's not so This is from Gary Snyder. Uh, and he, he, in an interview, he said this about close to 30 years ago. And this was about the, the, the place of work generally in our spiritual lives. He said, I wouldn't sit 10 hours a day every day because there's too much work in the world to be done. I wouldn't sit all the time. Who's going to do the work? Um, there's too much work in, in the world. There's too much other work in the world to be done. If we're going to have a democratic world that isn't fueled with nuclear energy, we damn well better learn that our meditation is primarily going to be our work. Wow. Yeah. That our meditation is primarily going to be our work. And so if we're interested in having our lives be meditative, we have to learn how to, how to have our work be continuous with our, our formal practice. And the third is from Howard Thurman, who was a great African-American uh, mystic, activist, spiritual teacher. And he said this, Don't ask yourself what the world needs. Interesting comment from an activist, right? Don't ask yourself what the world needs. Ask yourself what makes you come alive and go do that. Because what the world needs is people who have come alive. Ask yourself what makes you come alive and go do that because what the world needs is people who have come alive. And the last quotation is from my mother. (laughs) Whom many of you have met. Uh, My mother Bernice, who often comes here. And this is from her. I wrote it down. And and she said this from a very uh, early time. She said, let your labor be your amor. <laughs> Let your labor, which means this, like labor, it's the Latin for work. Let your labor be your amor, be your, be your love. Let your work be your love. Let your labor be your amor. Thank you. <laughs> so first on, on right livelihood and the, the um, sort of the ethics of work, which is a big, it's a really important part of having our work be spiritual practice. And traditionally, the notion of right livelihood, which you can remember, is part of the Eightfold Path. Very significant. The Buddha talking to um, primarily monks and nuns, but also lay people, said that how you make your livelihood, which is not something that monks and nuns generally have to worry about, is significant enough to be named as part as one of the eight dimensions of a spiritual path. So I think that in itself is quite significant. He's saying that work is really, really important. We have to really work in a certain way. And his emphasis in terms of right livelihood was primarily on our work not violating the ethical precepts. And so traditionally, right livelihood particularly meant not to engage in kinds of work which basically harmed people. You know, and so traditionally 
it was said that uh, right livelihood did not mean, uh, it meant that you did not uh, deal in weapons or arms that uh, who are in the slave trade or selling uh, meat or the killing of animals, being a butcher and so forth, or as well the, the sale of uh, alcohol and other drugs. And so uh, there, were, there were a few others, but the, the essence of it was that, the, that one's work should not violate one's basic, basic ethical uh, agreements or basic eth- ethical aims. Remember the five... The five um, core ethical precepts, which are in some ways all expressions of not harming, are first not to kill, then to take that not not to take that which is not given, and to be very careful and mindful with the with energy with basically three kinds of energies, which often get us in trouble: speech, sex, and drugs. <laughs> Didn't add rock and roll. <laughs> uh, but uh, and, and that was that was the primarily meaning. So if we would extend that out for ourselves, it would be to really have a a sense of are we in our work violating the ethical precepts? And if we reflect on this, it's actually a little trickier than simply are we not you know probably none of us is working for. Uh, Weapons manufacturers. I don't know. Maybe maybe it's the case. I, there are a lot of people who work for 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 arms manufacturers. It's you know a lot of people we may know, but for us we can also I think look more broadly and ask, to what extent, am I asked to um, compromise my ethical values in my work? And I think that's a larger question. To what extent, for example, uh, is there right speech or wise speech in my workplace? To what extent are people, do people speak kindly to each other? To what extent, if I want to follow the ethical precepts and I find myself in a workplace where people you know, you know, are not particularly spiritually guided, what do I do? You know, and I think there actually are a lot of ethical dilemmas that come up for many of us in our workplaces. You know, especially, I think, you know, as the workplace gets more and more focused on the bottom line, and on profit, right, then ethical concerns often are quite secondary. Even though I know in the work world there's been an increasing focus on ethics, right? I was thinking of, um, I was thinking of ethical issues related to work um, because before I came to California, I lived in Kentucky and rural Ohio, as some of you know, and I had, um, I had a position actually teaching, and I often taught ethics classes at the University of Kentucky. And one of the things that when in our classes we would often uh, have some focus on ethics and work or ethics and business. And I remember there was usually, in, when I taught it, there was one day in which I invited people to, to you know, who are mostly, uh, mostly 18 to 22, although some older people, I invited them to tell of all the unethical things they knew about from their work life. And we, it, it was interesting. <laughs> You would not. You better. You might look at a lot of your <laughs> your daily uh, purchases a little differently if you hear some of these. So some of the stories I heard were, you know, you know, a lot of the people worked in restaurants, right? You do not want to know <laughs> some of what they did in restaurants in terms of um, 
you know, meat, you know, meat that was spoiled and still serving it, or you know, or serving food that was half eaten by a, a different by by a patron. You know, basically, it's around the ethics conflicting with the wish to make money, right? You know, or I remember another story of a, a person who was he and his family basically supplied beer to parties, you know, these big kegs. They soon found out that people could not tell the difference between high-priced and low-priced beer. And so, they know that if it's in a keg without the label, and so what did they do? They served the... the people ordered the high-priced beer, they served the low-priced beer, and never were any complaints for years and years. So... It was interesting to hear a whole hour full of people's stories like that. And again, it was quite, quite sobering to, to think of the world. And of course, we know that in some ways the, the work world is very much organized by the so-called bottom line. And there is a lot of pressure at times to either not be ethical or to, you know, and we're not just talking about Enron, right? And so there's... There's a, there are a lot of ways in which we may have those kind of conflicts, and it's really often a hard question about what to do. And I was, and I was also thinking that um, you know there, the, the whole area of ethics is complex um, because if I'm not a, you know if I'm not uh, if I eat meat, am I in a way um, cooperating with the butcher? You know, and so it's. And Thich Nhat Hanh reflected on this a lot. He said that right livelihood was not just something personal, but that there's a, that it, there's a bigger system that we're part of, and that in a way, when we consume certain things that are maybe done not done ethically, we are participating in the wider system. And so that's a ref, that's an important reflection. This is what uh, Thich Nhat Hanh said, the, the Vietnamese uh, monk and teacher. Right livelihood is not just a personal matter. It is our collective karma. Suppose I am a school teacher and I believe that nurturing love and understanding in children is a beautiful occupation. I would object if someone were to ask me to stop teaching and become, for example, a butcher. But when I meditate on the interrelatedness of things, I see that the butcher is not the only person responsible for killing animals. We may think the butcher's livelihood is wrong and ours is right, but if we didn't eat meat, he would not have to kill. Right livelihood is a collective matter. The livelihood of each person affects everyone else. The butcher's children might benefit from my teaching, while my children, because they eat meat, share some responsibility for the butcher's livelihood. You know, and, and he goes on to just say that in an interrelated society, uh, it's, it's really like saying that all of our actions matter. And we, we're, we may be supporting livelihoods we don't agree with by our actions. And so it's really a place for deep, deep inquiry. So I think this, this, this actually becomes a powerful place to look at livelihoods. So it's not just, there's a personal dimension, but there's also this collective dimension. And as we, I think as we... Um, you know, as we live in a society that has uh, increasing areas of um, life come under 
the, you know, the, the intention primarily for profit, a lot of things come into, a lot of things come into question. I was thinking just of the way that increasingly uh, whole areas of life which used to be off limits are now coming, like health, hospitals, even education, come under different ethical guidelines. And so I think there's a lot of responsibility for us if we really take livelihood and work to be something ethical. It's very, very challenging practice. And I think I, think I wanted to just to point that out, that it's not just what, what we do personally is very important, but there is also this collective dimension, which can sometimes be, feel like too much. Oh my God, I, it's hard enough to get my own work right. How can I deal with the whole thing? But I think it's really, it's more to set the horizon that we are in an interrelated society and that if we're concerned about ethics and work, then we have to look very broadly and really, um, I think, you know, maybe, you know, I was thinking that, I was thinking of a meeting that I went to in Thailand about 10 years ago where we had about a week where we said, let us look really deeply at the vision of Dharma and what kind of society would we imagine if we would really live according to Dharma. And I imagine that as we ourselves look more deeply into how we live ethically in consonance with Dharma and, and we try to bring that into other parts of the world that we will that we may be changing things. You know, I'm I'm very encouraged by something recent that's happened at Spirit Rock, where there's a new program for the staff to have staff the staff work be more an expression of spiritual practice. You know, because there are ways that even at spiritual centers, as you may know, it's very hard not to just reproduce the dominant society, right? And you have to, we have to really do it consciously. And so that's happening right now at Spirit Rock. That there's an effort, it's called the Staff Dharma Program. And I think it's really encouraging. It's a way of having the, the, um, the work life be more continuous with the practice. And part of that is ethical, and part of it is, what I'll talk about in a moment, is the aspect of our, of our formal practice. Of our practice of mindfulness and speech and how do we do that and how do we deal with conflict and how do we, how do, we do that in a way which really expresses our deeper, um, our deeper vision. And to me, this is very, very challenging. It's both personally challenging and challenging for the community, but I think it's really, really crucial. So I think, I think it's really important for us each to reflect, what would this mean in my life? Because I think we have this yearning, right, to be in a situation where people share those values. And it's hard to be a practitioner. You have to go into the work world and sometimes either disguise or camouflage or leave your values behind. How many people can relate to that? Yeah. So, so this is a fortunate group because less than half raise their hands. <laughs> so maybe some of you aren't working. <laughs> You're, it's what, Wednesday morning, 9 o'clock. <laughs> I have a very um, amazing example, I think, of what you're okay. talking about in my work world. We, my, I was in the music business for 25 years, and my partner, composer partner, and I made a pact that we would always and only take jobs that felt like they were, um, you know, in line with our belief mm-hmm. system. And for many years, we were very successful, and we could turn down the Chevrons, and we could turn down, mm. we even turned down PG&E jobs. There were certain companies that we turned down, and we were very successful at it. And then we decided that we were going to give uh, a certain percentage of our profits to charities of our choice. 
this was after, you know, maybe 15, 16, 17 years of doing mm. this. And, you know, it was very interesting because society didn't, the people we were working with, the ad agencies, the, the um, uh, filmmakers, you know, it sounds wonderful that we're going to give money to charity, but people started thinking that we were kind of weird in that way. Like, it was just too much of a concept. And I think the composer that I was, uh, my partner, was thought of as this very spiritual kind of weirdo, maybe. I mean, very talented, very, very capable. But he got a reputation because he did believe in aligning his personal belief system with his work. Mm -hmm. And he started losing work, mm. ironically enough, because they thought, you know what, he's like kind of a spiritual nut. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so now, fortunately, he does have, you know, he travels around the world doing spiritual kind of music, um, world music, and he puts together these wonderful things. But the advertising community and the film community weren't able to handle it. Mm -hmm. So sometimes your belief system doesn't work in the real world the way you'd like it to. More than sometimes. <laughs> it's a challenge. And, yeah, it's, it's, it's a good example. And I think I want to, um, after I finish what I have to say, I want to actually have us talk with each other about that and maybe have other examples like that. But I think it's very, very, this is a very challenging topic. And it's not easy. And the world is even going more towards everything being instrumental and cutting out, you know, any, you know, anything that's a value of, oh, if it doesn't meet the bottom line, what do we do with it? So I think it's a very challenging question. And it really relates to the secondary I wanted to talk about, which is the area of vocation, of calling. What's my individual calling that brings out my, um, brings out my work as spiritual practice or that brings out my work as a place where I can express my deeper values? You know, the first is more ethical and it's related, but the second is like this very individual question, how do I express my vocation or my calling in the world? And, and I think I know for myself it's been, it's a long journey and sometimes a struggle. You know, again, and it comes up with all the issues that you mentioned about how do I find my calling, you know, in a world which doesn't always want my calling, <laughs> you know, or how do I... You know, it's expressed in different ways. How do I live with integrity in a world which often doesn't have integrity? You know, and it's a very, very powerful question. It's, you know, I was thinking of an, one of the, uh, another teaching experience I had when I was working with undergraduates. I would often ask them, as they were about to graduate, how many of you, if you could be supported in a very moderate way, sort of, you know, middle, lower middle class, or basically you know, middle class, okay, enough. How many of you would, if you could be supported in that way, would, if you could do the work that you most love, would do that? And about 90% of the people raised their hands. People who would felt called to do a certain kind of work that they most loved raised their hands. And about 10% wanted to make a lot of money. You know, not, not a huge percentage. And then I asked them, how many of you think that you will have that opportunity? And about 10% raised their hands. It's, it's very sobering. That, and, and how many of you think you will have to take jobs that you really don't believe in? And about 90% of them raised their hands. 
And so it's again it relates to, to that to that question of the of the ethics, but it also means that it, it takes some movement to really find our find that kind of vocation. That is it takes can take a deep listening, it can take experimentation, it can take really um, going deeply. It can take it can mean taking risk. It can mean taking risk like the in the story that you gave to really find ourselves. I know that's been that way for me, that I have you know, when I left Kentucky and Ohio, I came out to California without any work, you know. And my savings got quickly evaporated living in the Bay Area <laughs> in a very short time. And it, and it, was, it was a risk. I had a, cush, you know, I had a job I could have stayed at. But there was some way that it was, it was, it was a teaching position at a college, but I, something really didn't feel right about it. There was some deeper calling that was... That was I was trying to hear, and partly when we work and we get busy, we can't really hear those voices, can we? And it's very interesting, the whole notion of vocation or calling has to do with listening deeply within for what one is called to do. There's that the, the word for, for vocation is related to the word voice. It has to do with hearing. You know, and just some of you may know, I know um, German, and in German the word is beruf, which has, ruf means to to um, has to also the same as the word for calling, you know. And there's so in the in the uh, Jewish and Christian traditions, there was this notion that if you listen really deeply, you'll hear the calling of God as to what you should do. And it was to what role do you take in the community? And so the, there was a very prominent role given to this inner listening, as to as a way to know what you to know what you might do. And this was really this notion of calling was central in the in the Western traditions, and I think in the contemporary world it's a little more personal and psychological that we listen for where we have gifts, where we where we are where we are drawn to um, drawn to act, what we what we what we need to do. I know that for myself, it's often retreats which have been really helpful when I'm in a quest place where I don't really know exactly where to go to really to really try to listen. Okay, do I want to go there? Do I want to take this job? Do I want to do this work? And personally, you know, um, it took a lot of deep listening and some risk to actually um, move towards more Dharma teaching. You know, you may see me as, oh, it's always been a teacher like this, but it actually was a transition where I, had, where I moved away, which was that which was feeling old and not quite there, and moving more towards having the Dharma be, a full, be more fully expressed. And it took time and a transition and some struggle. And I think probably many of you have, have explored that. The last dimension I wanted to talk about is, is the dimension of how does our work become practice? How does our work become... Um, how do we bring our mindfulness, our, our work with uh, meditation into our practice, and I think this is into our work, and I think this is one of the great challenges of our times. And there, there are different ways to look at it. One of them is, how do I individually bring mindfulness in the midst of my workday? How can I be mindful? How can I be aware? How can I work with my intentions? These are all dimensions that we can ask ourselves. How could I be more mindful in my work? You know, is, is my meditative life such that I come on Wednesday mornings, I'm pretty meditative, and the rest of the week is just, you know, where am I? You know, um, I won't, I won't, I'll let you ask, answer that question. 
you know. But it's that way sometimes for for many of us, and there's not, and it takes time to sort of bring that spirit of mindfulness and bring the sort of the fullness of our practice into daily life. It's very very challenging, and I think it's especially challenging when we don't feel so much support, because I think many many of you us know that the hard thing is not to be mindful, it's to remember to be mindful, right? and and and. If you think of, if you've been on retreat or if you've lived in a spiritual setting, you get reminders all the time. You know, if you're at a retreat and you're just off in a daydream and you go by someone else doing slow walking meditation, you go, oh, oh yes, mindfulness. <laughs> but if you're at work and everyone's scurrying around, how do you remember? And so I think it's very challenging, but I think many of us, hopefully in the next years, we will find work with people Maybe we'll find uh, that there are enough people at a given workplace, and, and this is what's happening at Spirit Rock, who want to say, how can the workplace support my spiritual values? And this is, I think, the cutting edge probably for many of us. So how do we bring mindfulness in? And there are all these little um, sort of techniques and tricks that I think can help bring mindfulness more into daily life. It might be to... Um, it might be to wear some beads that remind us to be mindful. It might be to take little five-minute mindfulness sessions during the day. My favorite thing is to go, I've mentioned this a lot, is to, during meetings, go to the bathroom and spend a long time and <laughs> meditate. <laughs> it's socially awkward for people to say you spent a long time in the bathroom. <laughs> and so, this is... This is my own original technique. It's not passed on from the Buddha. <laughs> and so, but, I, but you get the idea. I think we have to find these little ways. It's basically, how do I come back to myself? How do I come back to presence? Another very valuable practice is working with intentions, as we were talking about with Shelley. Can I set intentions for how I want to be? I have a meeting. Can I take 30 seconds and set an intention for the next two hours? Can I do little experiments where, which is what I do often, I'm at a meeting and I try to be mindful and I write a little running log of what's happening in my mind on a piece of paper in front of me to help me be mindful. Or I might put people uh, that I've worked with have sometimes written things on their hands, particularly to remember right speech, because speech is, is a wonderful practice. If, if when we're speaking, we're always thinking, how can I express right speech? in this meeting, in my talk, and it can become stronger and stronger so that our speech suddenly becomes a place where we're practicing. You know, can I reflect on, you know, so this really has to do with how our daily life practice can support our practice at work. You know, doing readings, doing periodic readings, having regular daily practice, coming on retreats. It's really a question of how do I bring more energy, more perspective, more intention to my work life. And it's very challenging, isn't it? You know, because, again, it's very easy just to practice once or twice a day and then just be caught up in the swirl. And so I think that's kind of our collective challenge, is how to find individual ways to work, how to support ourselves as a community, and then I think as we evolve further, to find ways that we might... Um, actually be working with like-minded people and find support structures, like the program that's coming into being at Spirit Rock, which is, I brought it here, it's, it's actually 20 pages of detailed 
guidelines that involve all these different segments, dharma discussions, reading, regular practice, regular meetings, working with a mentor, you know, people who can work with a group once a week and have that as a common area. So I think I want to end there by, um, by end with a quotation from uh, Albert Camus, who talked about the keeping, keeping in one's life the core images that were there early in one's life when one's heart first opened, and keeping those images present more and more in one's everyday life, in one's work, in one's relationships. I think this is actually um, one of the great challenges of our community. It's to find ways to support each other, to have our work be more and more our continuous with our practice. It's a big challenge, but I think that, um, I think that it's really what we're called to do because we want, we want to live lives of wholeness, don't we? We want to live lives in which uh, all the parts of our lives are expressing our deeper values. So I'll, um, I'll end here with this. Um, and thank you, Labor Day, for inviting this topic. <laughs> so thank you.